Welcome back to the program. American political history is a complex and dynamic process. In that process, there have been periods of entropy and periods of great progress and imagination. Both have been a function of our political process designed by our founding fathers. But also, the temper and tenor of the times and the degree to which individual leaders have known how to work those levers of power has had a profound impact. The period of the Johnson presidency post-1964 is one of those periods. The Great Society, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid are all just a part of an agenda that reshaped America. Today, as we face congressional gridlock, as we mark the 50th anniversary of the apogee of the civil rights movement, as the president goes before Congress tonight, as we reassess our politics and institutions, it's well worth the time to look at the unique and politically bountiful period of the Johnson presidency. That's what my guest Julian Zelizer has done in his new book, The Fierce Urgency of Now. Julian Zelizer is the Malcolm Stevens Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton. He's the author or editor of numerous books that examine U.S. political leaders, policies, and institutions. And it is my pleasure to welcome Julian Zelizer back to this program to talk about the fierce urgency of now. Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the battle for the Great Society. Julian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. One of the things that is remarkable in looking at, at all of the things that you write about with respect to Johnson in this period is the, the holistic sense of it all that he seemed to have, at least from the point of view of hindsight, the ways in which all of these pieces of legislation and the civil rights movement and the momentum from the civil rights movement, how he was able to weave all of these together and use each one to accomplish other things, this sense of the whole. Talk a little about that first. That's true. I think... Uh... It was a whole, or sense of the whole, in two ways. One, both for Johnson and his liberal allies in Congress and uh, in the, the liberal movement of the period, they always envisioned that all these programs were interrelated, that you couldn't uh, do one without the other. So civil rights had to include federal funding for education. Uh, Medicare was not simply a program for the elderly. It was a program for the middle class. It was a program that would help, Af help African Americans. And so... Uh, there was this vision of a great society, a vision of an interlocking set of programs that would ultimately make a wealthy nation much stronger and deal with the kinds of quality of life problems and uh, injustices that had continued to exist. And then there was a, a kind of momentum issue, and you could see this on in Congress, that uh, on the one hand, when you passed one bill, it would set up the conditions to pass another. It created this moment when a lot could happen. Uh, but they also had to be very careful, both Lyndon Johnson and the supporters of the bill on the Hill, uh, that they didn't overload the system in the wrong way uh, and put one in the wrong sequence so that everything else, like dominoes, uh, started to collapse. And the sequencing of it was really part of what, what Johnson seemed to have an innate understanding of, how to play one coalition, one group against the other, how to see the big picture, not just from the perspective of, of a great society and a collection of legislation, but also from how to implement all of this. He did. I mean, one of the things I learned about Lyndon Johnson, I try to convey, is he truly was a creature of Congress. He was someone who had spent most of his life on Capitol Hill, 
first the House, then in the Senate, as Senate Minority and Majority Leader. So he understood the institution inside out. And just as important, he understood how powerful Congress was. And he always used to tell people uh, that Congress would get the best of every president and it would get the best of him eventually. Uh, so he had great respect for the institution and a great feel for how far you can push it uh, and, in turn, how far they would uh, be pushed and start to push back against the president. Uh, and so understanding that, I think, helped him most importantly when he had a window especially after the 1964 election, he moved incredibly quickly. He flooded Congress with legislation because he always anticipated he had about a year and a half to get things done, uh, and then he wouldn't be able to do much more on Capitol Hill. But he also did think of, you know, which bill comes first, which comes second. This became a big issue with voting rights um, in trying to calculate when the political pushback that he so feared and which he knew was coming would start and how to delay it as long as possible. And the order of the legislation was always very important to him. And the other force that was at play here was the force of the civil rights movement and the way he was able to mobilize that when necessary and, and struggle up against it at other times, but the way he was able to use it to accomplish his ends. Talk about that. Well, yeah, the civil rights movement is instrumental to understanding this period. So, you know, the first real battle of Johnson's presidency is over the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which had finally started to move uh, in Kennedy's final year as president. Uh, and then Johnson has to get it through the Senate, and it's a bill that ends segregation in the South, uh, but the Southerners filibuster it, and that means they can talk and talk and talk uh, and potentially uh, kill it uh, for a vote. And Johnson realized that on his own, he wouldn't be able to end that filibuster. He wouldn't be able to get enough Republicans on his own uh, to come along. So he depends on the movement. The movement uh, at the grassroots is still protesting. It's convening protests around the country and building national support for ending desegregation. Religious leaders tied to the civil rights movement are really important on pressuring Midwestern Republicans. They'll, they hold a 24-hour vigil in Washington, uh, seminarian uh, students who uh, get the media to look at why this has to pass. National religious organizations coordinate with preachers back in states like Illinois to give speeches and sermons every uh, weekend about why civil rights is needed and have congregants write members of Congress. So the movement was really important in organizing at the grassroots and then in Washington at fighting the tactics of the Southerners. And Johnson totally depended on this uh, to, to get the bill through and to check Southern power. And the same will be true with voting rights. Johnson there uh, gets the timing wrong. I mean, he wants to delay on voting rights uh, in early 65. He's scared. If he pushes too soon, there'll be a backlash in Congress and his other programs will get tied up. Uh, but the marches in Selma really force his hand uh, and while he's a bit frustrated, he also is happy because he needed the movement uh, to get congressional pressure and get congressional support for voting rights legislation. And we do see an absolute cause and effect relationship because those, those efforts, particularly in the Midwest, were able to move Republicans, people like Everett Dirksen, who was essential in getting it passed, and people like Bill McCullough. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, in those states especially someone like Dirksen, who was very conservative, very anti-government. Uh, he ended up supporting civil rights, but it wasn't a cause he had spent his life fighting for. 
they're watching very closely uh, all this pressure that's mounting, and they're kind of calculating when when is it politically unacceptable to stand against this bill and to ally uh, with Southern Democrats. And this is really important in why Dirksen eventually will say in 64 that civil rights is uh, an idea whose time had come. It wasn't simply because Johnson was in office or because Kennedy had been killed. It's because the movement had, had made this uh, quite clear and, and changed public uh, opinion. And, and again, uh, the same with voting rights. McCullough, who's the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee, who helps move the bill, he's even more interesting because he's a very conservative guy, but he had been involved with the NAACP and local fights for uh, desegregation for many decades. And so uh, he's a case where the movement, even in its infancy, infancy had already uh, kind of convinced him that, that this was a bill that needed to pass. How central to this was, one, Johnson's landslide in 64 and the fact that elections do have consequences, plus the fact that, that Johnson was able to position the Civil Rights Act, at least, as part of JFK's legacy? Well, the election was absolutely essential. So this is 1964, and two things happen. One is Johnson defeats Barry Goldwater, a Republican from Arizona who runs openly and positively and enthusiastically as a very right-wing conservative. So after the 64 election, a lot of Republicans concluded they can't, they can't be conservative anymore, uh, and they were willing to make deals with the administration. And the, the more important part of the election, it created huge Democratic majorities, 295 Democrats in the House, 68 Democrats in the Senate, and they were majorities that leaned liberal. Uh, and they were willing, eager, and ready to pass all kinds of programs if Johnson was with them or without them. And those majorities were key. A lot of opponents of programs like Medicare all of a sudden flip uh, into supporting some kind of bill because they realize they're going to lose if they don't, and they'll be humiliated. And the midterms of 66 uh, end with conservatives regaining their power. And after that, Johnson really can't do much uh, anymore. So, so the election is absolutely uh, instrumental. I think the, the death of Kennedy was important. Uh, Lyndon Johnson explicitly connected himself to Kennedy and told Americans, let us fulfill his agenda. Um, but I don't think we should overstate how much of an impact that had on actual bills. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the filibuster only ends because the movement really mobilizes both in Congress and outside to defeat the Southern filibuster. It's not because of Kennedy's death. And other programs like Medicare, you know, after Kennedy's death, they still don't go anywhere until the election of 64. So um, most important were those, those huge majorities that just gave him a great playing field for a year and a half. What's so interesting to look at about that is the way these districts, particularly House districts, were able to change in the course of two years. We look at it today, districts that so many more districts that are safe districts, the way things have been gerrymandered and, and drawn today was very different then, that these districts could go one way in one election and completely different two years later. That's a very good point. Uh, it didn't always happen. So Southern uh, districts tended to be pretty safe. That's part of why Southern Democrats had so much power. They were just reelected over and over, and this was an era of seniority. So the longer you stayed in office, the more powerful you became. But in the Midwest, there was enough flexibility 
uh, and uh, more dynamic districts that in the election of 64, a lot of uh, Republican areas flipped to the Democratic Party. They'll flip back uh, in 1966, uh, but that change is absolutely why a lot of the Great Society bills uh, would pass. So you have some of what we see today already happening, but it's become much, much worse. And if you don't have those kinds of swings in Congress, if, if legislators are almost totally protected by gerrymandering, it's hard for voters in elections to move Congress in one direction or the other. We also see the same kind of gridlock or similar kinds of gridlock that we were used to today during the Kennedy presidency. It was nothing new. Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, we often have a nostalgia for, <laughs> you know, periods when Congress was much better and much more functional. Certainly we think of the 60s as the heyday of, you know, members of both sides of the aisle getting along. Everyone understood that uh, policy is important. But the truth is that in 1963, if you picked up a newspaper or, or read uh, kind of popular books on Congress, what you'd learn about is a dysfunctional institution. Uh, Life magazine in 1964, a month after Kennedy's death, has an article about the, dis the lethargic Congress and whether LBJ will be able to do anything. Joseph Clark, a liberal senator from Pennsylvania, writes a book where he calls his colleagues the sapless branch of government. Uh, and this was a common refrain. There was a coalition of Southern conservative Democrats who controlled all the committees, and they teamed up with Republicans, and they just stifled almost every piece of legislation that came their way. So when Johnson took over, it was actually a moment when the rhetoric was very similar to today, and there was a sense that Congress just couldn't get a thing done. The third leg of this stool, beyond the 64 election and the civil rights movement, is the personal relationship that Johnson brought to these legislators. And, and much of this comes out in a lot of the phone conversations that you've heard and, and that you talk about. And you really begin to see the importance of that interpersonal relationship. That's absolutely true. I think it, it worked both ways. So uh, Johnson had a good feel for... Uh, how you can get a legislator on your side. So Senator Everett Dirksen, he was really important because uh, if the administration was going to end a, a filibuster by Southern Democrats in the Senate, uh, they needed Republican votes. So Dirksen was the guy who controlled the Republican votes. And so Johnson understood that the way to win Dirksen over uh, was to be very obsequious with him, to give him credit for everything. They literally would negotiate the civil rights bills in Everett Dirksen's office just to give him a sense of his importance. They'd sit around a big table. Dirksen got to sit at the head of the table. The Senate Democratic majority leader had to sit on the side. Uh, and Johnson knew from years of being with Dirksen, the more credit he gets, the more that he can claim this is a bill of his own, the better the chances are uh, that you'll get his support. And vice versa, a lot of these members of Congress knew what made Lyndon Johnson tick. So they would play him. They knew how to push him. Uh, they knew how to get him to enter into the kind of compromises um, that, that they needed. And so those relations, I think, were, it comes from an era when being in Congress for a long time was a vocation, it was a career, there was a love of the institution, and even if Congress was dysfunctional and tough, uh, when these moments occurred, those relationships could really move into action, and I think you could see them working through many of the stories in my book. Certainly you couldn't have imagined, even had uh, he lived, you couldn't imagine JFK having accomplished virtually any of this, even given the, the civil rights movement. 
I could, and it's hard. It's counterfactual, and that's always difficult right. to imagine. I, I do think if somehow he lived and everything played out exactly the same, which wouldn't have, uh, he would have been more successful. And I think, um, you know, I, I think uh, with civil rights, he's already he, he changed his course in '63 because of the protests in Birmingham, really forced his hand and push him to propose a bill. It is moving forward. It looks like it's going to get through the House, where it had been blocked for many years. Uh, so uh, you could imagine the movement would continue uh, to push that forward. And certainly if he had the majorities that Johnson enjoyed, again, it's so counterfactual, nothing would have fallen into place. But did he enjoy those majorities? I do think moving things like Medicare uh, could have taken place under Kennedy. Um, so he was not Lyndon Johnson. He did not have the skills of Lyndon Johnson, but nor did he have the same kind of Congress. Nor did he use Lyndon Johnson, who he certainly had in the administration, to accomplish any of these things with respect to Congress. He didn't. And this was a huge uh, uh, point of tension uh, between the two men. I, I literally start the book saying that Lyndon Johnson hated being vice president. Uh, and he particularly hated being vice president under Kennedy. The, the Kennedy administration didn't want to use him. They were very scared of, of him, that if you give him some power, he wouldn't stop. He would be willing to do things that undermine what the administration was. Johnson, in fact, is becoming more vocal for civil rights before Kennedy is willing to do so. And so this was always a fear. Johnson resented it. He thought that Kennedy was undercutting himself because he wasn't using a great asset that he had in dealing with Congress. Uh, on the other hand, I, I would say that that's also Johnson's explanation of what went wrong. And it, it's still unclear that if Johnson did more schmoozing as vice president and more outreach, I still think the opposition to programs like Medicare, which were being tagged as socialized medicine uh, or civil rights, was still very strong. Uh, and it's not clear the time was right before 64 to pass them. Talk about what happened in 66, why the pushback was so strong, why the elections went so far in the other direction. One thing that happens is uh, the, the, the bill that Johnson proposes in 1966 is to end discrimination in the sale or rental of housing. And this really uh, uh, touches a nerve in northern states. Many Democrats who voted for much of what Johnson supported, this goes too far. It threatened people's property. It's creating a lot of uh, backlash in, in white ethnic communities. And this bill, which doesn't pass in 1966, starts to stimulate a racial backlash that benefits Republicans. The war in Vietnam is really starting to take shape by 1966, and Republicans, not the college protesters, Republicans in the 66 midterms attack Lyndon Johnson, and they say the war is a disaster, but it's because Johnson isn't tough enough, because he's not willing to unleash America's air power on the North Vietnamese. And finally, there's concerns over spending. And the argument uh, many Republicans make uh, is that federal spending is rising, we are getting deficits that are too large, and that inflation will soon set in. And so the combination of deficits, Vietnam, and racial backlash leads to huge gains for this conservative coalition I've been talking about. Republicans gain 47 seats. Uh, Richard Nixon, who campaigns and raises money for a lot of candidates, has remade himself uh, as a potential candidate for 68. And the conservatives are back in power on Capitol Hill. Uh, and they'll force Johnson to spend his final few years talking about spending cuts to the great society. 
the other part of it is that, and it is, I suppose, the great irony in all of this, is that Johnson realized, as you said before, that he had to get all of this done in about a year and a half. And yet the process of doing that was also almost much too much too soon and created a lot of the pushback because it was so dramatic in terms of the degree of change. It did, and it was uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, on some areas, uh, it was uh, it, it created problems that the administration didn't totally anticipate. So the war on poverty becomes a big problem in cities like Chicago. These are uh, this is money uh, meant to help local programs to deal with issues like preschool education. Um, uh, just community safety, uh, but often the money went directly to local activists and local organizers. That was how the program was structured. And mayors like Richard Daly of Chicago, uh, who was a powerful Democrat, a liberal Democrat, were furious that federal money was coming into their cities and they didn't have any control over it, which is traditionally what would happen. And so they start to openly oppose some of what Johnson is doing. Um, so, you know, he did so many things. Some took on a life that he didn't expect, and simply the kind of overwhelming nature of all the programs hitting members of Congress, I think, in some ways tired them out. And so um, by the time of those midterms, many were certainly much more lukewarm in, in their support, particularly as he pushed forward on the issue of race. The other thing you hear so much about during this period, and this really starts in the Kennedy era and then goes along with Johnson through Vietnam in particular, is the whole issue of executive power and executive action and what are the limits of that, a discussion not dissimilar to what we're hearing today. Yes, it's true, and, and Johnson did use executive power, certainly um, with the war in Vietnam. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution gives him very uh, wide authority uh, to conduct military action, which he'll use without asking for a declaration of war. But Johnson believed in legislation. He wasn't much of a fan of executive power, I'd say, and he understood that really to change America, really to get programs that would last, that would outlast him that would outlast the coalition in Congress he was depending on. He had to get it on the books. He had to get bipartisan support for it uh, one way or another. Uh, and he really was a legislative president. That's how he measured his success. Executive power can get things done, uh, but it's much more limited. It doesn't have the same kind of long-term significance. And it certainly was not the preference of how Lyndon Johnson wanted to leave a legacy. And talk about Johnson post-66, the impact that the election had, not just in terms of his, his inability to get as much policy done, but how it affected him personally and emotionally, and this sense of it almost being the beginning of the end for Johnson. It's devastating to him. Uh, you know, he, he realizes very clearly he doesn't have the numbers on Capitol Hill anymore, those liberal majorities that eroded. And so he can't really push for new things, which is really what he wanted to do. Uh, and then uh, Vietnam starts to just dominate all the discussions, and, and in a particular way. The conservatives in Congress, uh, Southern Democrats like Wilbur Mills, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, start to tell him, if you want more money for Vietnam, which he's asking for, you're going to have to cut domestic spending. You can't have guns and butter. You can have guns or butter. And um, that becomes the big debate of 1967 and 68. It results in his accepting cuts to domestic spending 
much steeper than anything he thought was good. And he's depressed. He, he doesn't feel uh, like he's having that big of an effect. He's devastated to see that a lot of the programs he passed are already being forgotten uh, because of all the controversy over Vietnam and the rioting that's taking place in the cities. And I think uh, by the time he decides not to run and announces his resignation in March of 1968, it's not simply he senses he's going to lose, but I think, you know, emotionally he's become pretty distraught with what his presidency is. He is someone uh, who wanted to govern when the moment was right and didn't find much joy or solace in governing um, when he was simply playing defense and trying to protect desperately the programs that he had put into place. Julian Zelizer, the book is The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. It's just out from Penguin Press. Julian, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.